1: comes out on July 1st, and it is truly a labor of love. I hope you'll pre-order, order, order, and join me on tour as I go across the country. You can find out more at zibbyowens.com or bookendsmemoir.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens because I always post about everything. Enjoy the show. Kian Julie Wang is the author of Beautiful Country, a memoir. She was born in China and at age seven moved to Brooklyn, New York with her parents. For five years thereafter, the three of them lived in the shadows of undocumented life in New York City. Her first book is a poignant literary memoir that follows the family through those years as they held on to hope and joy while confronting poverty, manual labor, and the perpetual threat of deportation. A graduate of Yale Law School and Swarthmore College, where she juggled classes and extracurriculars with four part time jobs, she's now a litigator. She wrote Beautiful Country on her iPhone during her subway commute to and from work at a national law firm, where she was elected to partnership within two years of joining the firm. She is now managing partner of Gottlieb & Wang LLP, a firm dedicated to advocating for education and civil rights. She believes that the first step to eradicating systemic barriers is affording underprivileged communities the quality of legal representation typically reserved for wealthy corporate interests. Her writing has appeared in major publications such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, L. Harper's Bazaar, and The Cut. She regularly speaks on issues such as immigration, education, discrimination, and the power of literacy in the media, and at conferences, universities, corporations, community centers, and houses of worship. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and their two rescue dogs, Salty and Peppers. And I was lucky enough to meet her at the Poets and Writers Gala, and she is just as amazing as she seems in the podcast. Hi there. How are you? It's nice to meet you. Good. How are you? Wonderful to meet you. Thanks for doing this. Your memoir was so, I mean, I'm sure you hear this all the time, beautiful. I shouldn't say beautiful since beautiful is in the title, but it really was a really beautiful memoir. So congratulations. I know you've gotten a bazillion accolades, but all well-deserved.
2: Oh, thank you. I'm honored. And I'm a huge fan of yours. So I'm totally fangirling right now.
1: Oh, <laughs> thank
2: you. And also your color-coded shelves. With
1: thank you. S- yes. um, yeah, that was a COVID redo of the room. So thank you. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sure many of the almost 600 people listening have read your book, and that's probably why they're here. But just in case, could you please give the the rare listener perhaps who hasn't read your book yet a glimpse of what it's about? And I know you wrote in the book about how and what inspired you to do it, especially when you wrote it. But if you could talk about that as well, that would be great. Sure.
2: So Beautiful Country is a direct translation of the Chinese word for America, meiguo. And the book focuses on my parents and my first five years In New York City when we moved here in 1994. We lived in undocumented status for that time and I went overnight from being the privileged uh, child of professors to working next to my mother in the Chinatown sweatshop making Pennies per article of clothing, watching her stand in ice water in the sushi processing plant. And I wrote it really as a tribute to new immigrants, early immigrants, undocumented immigrants, and Asian Americans who are so often erased from our country's dialogue and national news. I always dreamed of writing this book because when I arrived here, I learned early that to throw off suspicion about my immigration status, I it was imperative for me to learn to speak English perfectly and fluently. And so I threw myself into the library and read as many books as I could. But of all the books that was available then in the 90s, there were none really talking about undocumented immigrants. And there were only a handful that represented Asian American experiences. So I, I remember turning to my mother and saying, "Why aren't we anywhere in the books?" And she never failed to tell me that I would be one to write to write such a book that I would need. But I kind of put that dream off for a bit and pursued law and really needed, I guess, a sense of safety, financial security and immigration safety. But in 2016, when I finally became a nationalized citizen, some 20, Two years after I first arrived here. That was when I realized that I I then had a profound privilege and thus responsibility to share my experiences because they weren't just mine. They belonged to a vibrant and expansive community, a community that is often silenced, especially during that particular election, but throughout most of American history.
1: Wow. Well, you did a really amazing job. Painting the picture of what you were like as a little girl, what it was like before you came over, the flight where you were on the plane with your mom, which, by the way, I was sort of having a panic attack on your behalf as you're sitting next to your mom trying to transfer flights and all this stuff as a, as a young child. Like, I don't even trust my kids to go to the bathroom on an airplane by themselves. And there you were sitting there and your mom is essentially passed out because of her intense motion sickness. And you have to navigate getting her off the plane and a wheelchair and connecting flights and getting to America and not speaking the language. And just as like an introduction to this terrifying new world, that moment and the emotions that you evoke in writing that scene were just so overpowering. And it immediately just made me want to be like, oh my gosh, this poor girl, let me like give her a hug. And oh my gosh. And then of course you, it, that was just like the prelude to, to everything else to come. So I don't know the way you immediately drew the reader in and evoke emotion like that. I mean, that's good writing. That's what that is. So. Thank you so much. Yeah. I really
2: wanted to render from the first page, the experience of an immigrant child where they, she is put in a position where she has to almost take care of her parent, and that is so common Yep, for children who immigrate because of language barriers and cultural barriers. But I hope that people would be able to relate to it even if they didn't immigrate, if they had a sick parent or a parent who was otherwise incapacitated being thrown into that adult role out of nowhere and then just learning to grapple with it, I think is an important to celebrate feature of, of childhood. Children are have this distinct, resilient ability to roll with things as they are presented. And that's really what I did. I mean, I, I was told I had to get my mother to New York somehow. And uh, when you're in the moment, <laughs> that's what you do.
1: Wow, unbelievable. The way you portrayed your dad also during the same time which you almost did with like this diminishment, right? Physically and emotionally and everything, right? First, you were really close. Then he moves ahead of you by two years. And then as you reunite with him and his communication with you got less and less robust, if you will, when you see him again, he's this like shell of himself. And then as you go through life and you see this prestigious man who would wear white gloves and teach and, you know, this just total rock star man in his homeland Become so overlooked in every way, just struggling to make do. And you can see him sort of shrinking. Oh my God, just tell me about that and, and how y- you had to like cope with. I mean, I know you just did it because you did it, but that's a lot to shoulder. Yeah.
2: I, it was strange too because he left when I was five and then I didn't see him for two years. And that's two years to a seven-year-old. <laughs> as a long time. And as he was gone, I remember not being able to recall what exactly he looked like. We only talked on the phone and he would send us letters and gifts, but there was no Zoom, obviously. And I would watch TV and there was a very esteemed emperor in Chinese history, Qianlong. And there were a lot of shows about him. And I just started pretending that that was my dad and that's what he looked like. And mm-hmm. so he if anything, in his absence, grew even larger in my memory and in my mind. And so when I got off the plane and and we collected our bags and I saw him at JFK, I was like, well, that's not an emperor. That's not even (laughs) the dad I remember because I also got taller. So he seemed smaller. He wasn't eating that much. So he was kind of this really, truly a shrunken version of himself. And more so than physical features, it was how he carried himself. It really did seem like he had been beaten down and kind of shell-shocked. And I remember one of the first things he told me when I got here of how things worked was that he said, I was a full man, at least in China, despite that I was from a dissident family and prevented from teaching real history. I was a full man. People treated me like a full man. In America... Because I am Chinese and because I am Asian, I am half a man, because I'm seen as weak. And people assume that they can take advantage of me. And I never, I mean, for all of those years, I didn't quite understand what he meant. I only knew my own experience as a little, little girl. But looking back, God, what a blow that must have been to a professor in his 30s to arrive here and all of a sudden face this diminution in, in status and regard and, and not at all be prepared <laughs> to deal with
1: it. And your mother too. I mean, she was a published professor in in math and physics or something crazy. I mean, and next thing you know, like you go, and you show us as you go there to watch her sort of hunched over to become one of the, I can't remember what word you use, but it was something great that I can't think of because. Hanto, yeah. Like a yeah. steamed yeah. bun, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who like these hunchbacks, right. The, over this. St- sewing machines and and how identity is essentially stripped away, right? Because that's really what's happening in these giant places that you describe, whether it's the sewing or the horrific sushi freezing cold. I mean, I was cold just reading about how cold you all were and the effects of that on skin and everything in the sushi. I like feel terrible eating sushi ever again after reading this whole thing. But anyway, but what happens is like, who who are they all the amazing parts about them are gone and they're valued what for their fingers for their ability to gut a fish for their and what about the rest of them this brilliant intellect that they that they have and the personality and everything and it's not just them it's like i mean it's really it's almost like a prisoner it's like a prisoner situation really where you're you become just one of the masses essentially right
2: yeah yeah but prisoners are given a place to live and some food Buddhist so in some ways it was more challenging. I think yeah, my parents just had to eviscerate that intellectual part of themselves because I could see it when the intellectual woke up and thought, what am I doing here? I could see it in my mother very clearly. <laughs> this is not my life. I'm a published professor. I'm developing advanced computer science at its earliest days. What am I doing here? It was this look of like t- trapped terror. And so in the book, I try to show how they kind of deadened themselves a little bit. Yeah. Um, I saw parts of them kind of go away. And I think it, they had to, I mean, what choice did they have to to survive? And the funny thing is, I mean, I really admired my mother. I still admire my mother. <laughs> but as a child, I saw her as this regal, poised tall and brilliant woman. And she would just almost float from lecture hall to office and kitchen and seamlessly just take care of everything. And on the plane, I started to see, oh, she's vulnerable. She has weaknesses. I have to take care of her. And she kind of lost a little bit of that godlike quality that so many children attribute to their parents and especially their mothers. But. I remember looking at her at the sweatshop and at the sushi processing plant, and I could still see a bit of that regal spark in her. Some of it was dimmed, but it wasn't completely removed. And as long as I saw that little spark, or when she was working at the warehouse and she got so angry at her exploitative boss that she spat in his cup, like that spark showed itself to me in many ways. And it told me, that my mother was still in there and that we would be able to make it out and that was just temporary and then she could be her floating regal self again. And I, I, I really can't overstate the influence that my mother had on me in those years, the, the ability to kindle that hope and that ability to dream and, and believe that things were temporary. It really got me through all of the experiences that we were thrown into.
1: I mean, it's not so dissimilar to, I mean, I know we're here with the Stryker Center today, but to the, in the Holocaust and some of the work camps or even in, you know, in the movie, like Life is Beautiful, right? With the, they have to disguise the camps for the little girl or something, right? It's, it's the power of parents to get through whatever they have to get through is to make sure that things are okay for their kids. It's really like this elemental sort of evolutionary instinct, right? Which you see so clearly in in your parents and their willingness to fight and do whatever, whatever they can. I mean, it's anyway, it's very powerful, very powerful story and so much trauma too. I mean, to witness and like, how do you go from that and that survival? And, you know, you had a moment where you were describing this gaze of your dad's, right. Where he would sort of stare off into space and he would be inaccessible for that moment. How do you ratchet all that back? How do you recover from something like that? And yet here you are, right? Yale Law School and this, that, the other thing. Like, how do you go from, you know, how did you, how did you go from all of that to here? And how do we make sure that other people like, what is the secret to getting past something like that?
2: I think people often talk about trauma as if it were an antithesis of empowerment and insight, but My book is as much a tribute to childhood and family as anything else. And I don't think anybody gets through childhood without trauma. It's just not possible. It's a part of growing up and part of growing up and reclaiming your power or claiming your power as it were, is is understanding that trauma, understanding the effect of what happened to you so that it no longer becomes something that happened to you, but something that you've made sense of. And so I wouldn't say that going to Yale Law School, clerking on a fancy court or working in a fancy office defined my ability to heal from that. I thought that it would. I, I, for, for most of my adult life thus far, that's all I chased. I chased prestige and status and security. I thought once I made X number of dollars and got these fancy degrees, then I would be heals and the past would no longer be with me and I would never have to worry about it again. And so for all of those years, I never talked about what happened. My parents and I were just like, "It just, it's fine now. We don't need to talk about it, right? What's the point of rehashing those wounds? But I think as we all know, <laughs> when we let a wound just fester, ignored, it only gets worse. And when I was in those fancy spaces, I started to get a sense that I was just running away from things and Mm. acting a role rather than being who I actually was. And it wasn't until, and I have to say those things were helpful to me in that they did give me the security and resources to go into therapy and feel safe enough to, to look back into the past. And and read my childhood diaries, which was something that was really eye-opening to me. I uh, copiously (laughs) wrote down the details of my life as a child. I was really inspired by Harriet the Spy, and (laughs) I wanted to solve a great big mystery in New York, and I couldn't find a mystery. But so I just, that meant that I just had these diary entries of just mundane details. Like, People ask me, how do you remember that your classmate ate a short strawberry shortcake popsicle every day? I was like, well, because it was in every other page of my diary. I was so angry. (laughs) I couldn't have one. Reading, oh, finally, finding the courage to open up those diary entries that my mother saved through all of our moves and and years. Because she said, one day you might want to have this. And seeing, being able to bring back to life that little girl and everything that she grappled with. Everything she was thrown into, and everything that she was even, many of the things that she was afraid to even put down on paper. Like, I didn't once write down in my diary, We are undocumented. I am scared, right? That's not what I wrote, but I, I wrote in rants and, and fits and, and what I observed of like, you know, I saw a cop around the corner, so I turned and walked the other way, things like that. And really being able to feel in my heart what that little girl was going through and did not feel safe to feel. It was decades of bottled emotions that was just locked and taped down. And once I opened that and embraced everything, everything she felt, everything she did, the good and the bad, like playing nasty pranks on people, everything, all the joys that she faced, getting a Tamagotchi, uh, going to McDonald's, and in addition to the fears, it wasn't until I was able to experience that full slate of emotion and experience that I felt I'm really understanding myself. I'm really understanding my life and who I am, and I'm really claiming all of it. I've It wasn't until then that I felt that I had true integrity and authenticity because if you're not able to be honest about yourself, if you're not able to accept yourself for everything you are, then there's no way that you're able to accept anyone else. And that was something that I noticed in my early adulthood, But that because I had this major secret that I never gave voice to, there was a natural wall to intimacy. No one could actually get to know me because they wouldn't know why I was, you know, I would go to the supermarket and buy a ton of food for no reason, even though I had a ton of food at home, this inclination to just like Hoard food because I had once been very, very hungry as a child. And there were all these things about me that as I learned, like, yes, you've been hungry as a child. Yes, you're afraid that you're going to be hungry again. You might always be afraid that you're going to be hungry again. Once I was able to say that to myself, and then once I was able to say that to someone outside of me, that need to cling to things and secrets dissipated. And in lieu of building those walls, I was able to build. Security and connections and, and being open with myself and in turn learning so much about how everyone has secrets like this. I mean, I truly, I thought I was singularly bad and illegal and only I had secrets like this for, for most of my life thus far. And it wasn't until I began speaking about it that I learned that regardless of your circumstances, as a child, you learn There are things about you that are unacceptable and those become the things that you guard and those become the barriers to building true connection with the world.
1: Wow. Well, your therapist is amazing, is all I have to say.
2: (laughs) I have several, so it's not a one-person job.
1: (laughs) No, it's, I mean, your introspection, it's it's great. I mean, this is like the emotional awareness people crave. I mean, and sometimes, I mean, obviously it's you, right? Sometimes people can try as they might, but they'll never be able to process and then re- sort of redo in their brains their past experience and then actually open up. So it must have felt so liberating in a way, although probably terrifying to let go of all of that. It must have been so comfortable to have it there and then suddenly feel so crazy not to have it sort of hanging from your neck, if you will.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was my security blanket. Like mm-hmm. this, is, this is my the chip on my shoulder that no one knows about. I'm carrying it around with me. It's my only true friend at Yale Law School because nobody else except this chip knows everything about me. And this is my armor. This is how I keep people at a distance so they can't hurt me. And I, I can't, I, I don't risk anything ever again. And when I started to try to, I guess, cut that chip off that had grown attached to me, I mean, I think anyone who's been in therapy knows there's an incredibly terrifying breakdown. I I remember waking up in my fancy Upper East Side apartment and just being like, what is my life? I thought that I had arrived. Like, I haven't made. Why is it that I cannot get out of bed? I just want to cry all day long. And these tears are not even, they don't even feel like present day tears. They feel like tears from 20 years ago so they're like almost, I don't know, fermented tears. And it just, it felt like no matter how long I spent in bed crying, it would never get, be done or get rid of them. And until one day, you know, I was, I just allowed myself as my therapist said to, to wallow in all of the feelings that I had locked up for so long and, and just believe that they will pass. And they did. <laughs> and, the, the next day was the first day of the rest of my life of being myself, and it took a lot of practice to even let people in on, on small details of my life, like that I had been born in China was not something that I readily told people. And of course, it was an incredibly long journey from that to having a book out there that details held everything that I never
1: shared. Yeah, I was going to say, you definitely like <laughs> yeah. ricocheted in the opposite direction here. I mean, you know. <laughs> and uh, I still have days when I wake up and I'm
2: like, oh my God, this is out there. I can't take it back. And just yesterday, I was like, okay, so my future children are going to be born into a world <laughs> where this is just public knowledge. And it just, I just never appreciated what an act that would be. And, and for, you know, all of September, I just felt incredibly exposed like I was naked on on yep. the world stage, and I still have moments where where I feel like that. But the connections that I've gotten the the people from the undocumented community, the Asian American community who have reached out I mean that has meant the world to me. They say that they now see themselves on on a shelf in a bookstore in a library. That's everything I dreamed. So it's it's truly really an honor.
0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hey, ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Well, I hate to throw around the word brave because it's so trite when it comes to memoirs and whatever, but there is this stoicism required in in sharing so much so intimately and doing all that work to get yourself to this place. So anyway. Bravo to you. I mean, I know you know that, but not for the book necessarily, although it is amazing, but more for the fact that you got yourself to this place where you're comfortable with all of it and can live a totally different life. Like you easily could have gone on sheltering yourself from all those raw emotions and just like, right? You could have just gone on like that. Many people do. Yeah. I was looking down
2: the barrel of that and Mm -hmm. I saw that it was not the life that I wanted to sign up for. Um, and there was something, in, it was that little girl in me that was like, I just want to be free and freedom to me. I had gotten to a level of privilege where freedom to me was not just money and housing and food, although those were important still, but emotional freedom, psychological freedom and being able to confront all the fears that I had been running away from. I, I just felt like I would be running forever if mm-hmm. I didn't turn around one day and say this, this stops with me because it, it wasn't just my experiences. It was also generational trauma. I mm-hmm. was yes. passed in my blood from yes. my parents' experience in the cultural revolution and from their parents' experiences being intellectuals and writers in a country that very much valued censorship more than anything else. And I really did not want to continue passing that down. And I'm sure I'll mess up my future kids in yes. some way, but it'll be entirely new.
1: New we don't mess up our kids. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah.
2: And I just wanted to, at the very least, understand why it was that I was responding the way that I did and and creating the life, the adult life that I had. And when I took a close look at it, it was that fear motivated everything. And, and I just did not want to live a fear-based life.
1: So then when you sat down to do it and wrote, what was that like? Like, did the, did it all, I mean, were you looking at the diaries and then synthesizing or was it all just like coming out from memory? Like, were you crying? Were you like, what, like, give me a picture when, where were you? Were you yeah, at home? Yeah, did you go to the library? Like, what was it all like? Oh, it was awful.
2: So in 2016, I decided I'm going to write this book. Never talked about these things, but I'm going to write it. Cause I, <laughs> I I have the ability to write it apparently. And I sat down and wrote it and I was like, I can't write it. I don't know what I want to say. I have no idea. I haven't even examined those those things. So that was when I went into therapy and spent a good year, year and a half, crying in therapy, looking at photos and diary entries, and really just getting to know the past me and my my story. So I didn't write at all because I was just it was too much. It was Mm -hmm. just going to therapy itself. Turned my life upside down because I had just never so closely looked at my everything, (laughs) the things behind all of my decisions. All of a sudden I was like, oh, why do I get a bagel in the morning? Why don't I get a donut? I don't understand. Oh, maybe it has to do with this thing that happened when I was eight years old. You know, every little thing was under a microscope. And then finally, I felt ready. I mean, I was still in therapy, but I I felt like I had gotten to this point where I had not only embraced the happy memories, but also was able to step into the sad ones that I felt ready to start writing. But I was working 80 hours a week trying to make partner. I just didn't have time. So again, I would come home at like 2 a.m. And after sitting all day in front of my work computer, sit in front of my personal computer and just like, you're writing now. And I'd just be like, I can't write. I'm so tired. And there would be times where I fell asleep on my laptop. But one day I was on my way to work on the subway. And anyone who, well, everyone who lives in New York here knows that the subway has a lot of delays. And I was stuck between stations. And there was the the announcer came on with a dreaded announcement that we were being held by a signal delay. And I was like, shoot, I have so much to do. And I'm just sitting here. I can't even call my clients. I can't you know, review briefs. There's nothing I can do. And then I looked at my hand and my phone was in it. And I was like, well, I have a notes app. So I started writing the book in my notes app. And somehow that format also liberated me because it didn't feel quite like I'm sitting in front of a keyboard writing with a capital W. I'm just typing notes
0: mm-hmm. like a
2: grocery list of memories that I want to hang on to or that I want to pass down to my great grandchildren one day when I'm gone. And that format gave me the freedom to be truly honest because when I came upon times and memories that I said, I can't share this. What about my parents? They're not going to want me to share this. I told myself, first of all, it's just a silly document in your, in your phone. No one sees it. You'll never finish a book because what do you know about writing a book? And this is for people, our descendants, when, when I'm dead. No one will see this while I'm alive. And of course, that, came, that became a, a huge lie because <laughs> many people have now read it. But it was what I needed to do to find that emotional truth and, and put it on the page. And yeah, there'd be times on the subway where I'd be typing and just bawling, describing awesome. the sushi scenes awesome. where it was really difficult just be bawling, and then there'd be times where I would be typing and laughing. That joke that my mother, that riddle that my mother told me when she was learning to cut hair at the watermelon, like that had me laughing out loud. I was that <laughs> Weird person in the subway, just laughing to herself. And that experience, that range of emotions, showed me that there was, you know, so often what we paint as trauma is not. It's not just that. It's also the key to our joy and our empowerment. And it really showed me how resilient and strong my my family and my parents are. Yeah. And, and having that contained period of time. I mean, I, I'm sure you have your own pieces of writing advice, but this is one that I give a lot. Assigning a, a bucket of your day to writing and then just not worrying about it after was the most liberating thing I could have done. Because once I stepped off the subway platform. That was my lawyering time. I didn't need to worry about the book. I didn't need to feel guilty that I wasn't writing the book because I had designated periods in my day where I would be focused on the book and only the book. And the rest of my day, I could live my life. And it was, it was a way that uh, truly freed me up to write the most authentic book I could while still being a lawyer.
1: Wow. Amazing. That's beautiful. I can't believe it. I feel like there should be you know, like a video clip of like all these people on the subway and the subway, like, you know, and then like it swings over to you and you're just like typing on your phone, you know, and then it's like future, not, you know, future memoirist, <laughs> award-winning, whatever. You know, Cause you don't know what everybody's doing, right. You don't know what you're just looking at people. I mean, and this sounds so obvious, but it's just like <laughs> with every story, it's like, you just don't know what the people all around you, especially here in New York and, I guess you're here. We could have like done this in person. I wish we were all at the Striker Center, by the way. I want, that would be great to go back in person. But you don't know what people are thinking, feeling, writing. I mean, it's amazing. The person sitting next to you could be doing. You just don't know. Anyway, it's 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 amazing. Um, that's
2: what i Actually, this like comes from a diary entry. I didn't use this word, but the the subway is a microcosm of everything that's beautiful about. New York city, like uh, a author could be sitting next to a doctor could be sitting next to an artist who's sketching. Yep. I often see people sketching on the train and I really wonder yep. where that piece will go. And it's just inspiring, just sitting in the subway and, and looking at people, which I did sometimes when I kind of hit a block, I would just look around and observe people and see what they were doing and wonder about what they were feeling and what they were going through. And that kind of opened up my curiosity about my own
1: life. Do you worry I know there have been so many recent subway attacks on Asian- American women in particular my this is a while ago and probably off topic but my anyway I, I knew someone who was also pushed in front of a subway years ago and all these crimes and whatever like do, how do you feel do you how do you feel like walking through the world now with all of this this sort of resurgence of I mean attacks
2: uh, my my heart hurts and I'm I I have To say that I probably am more afraid than I was before, but part of me, when this first broke, felt somewhat validated because having grown up on the New York City subway system, that stuff was happening way before the pandemic. It was happening in the 90s, especially to Asian women who were painted as submissive and weak and sexual, and nobody talked about it. So I'm, I'm glad at least that the media is talking a little bit about it, certainly not to the extent that it, it should be, but at least there is dialogue and communication. And I've since spoken to so many Asian American women who were saying, yeah, we just were like, oh, this is only happening to me, I guess, because no one else is experiencing Mm -hmm. it. At least now we have that sense of community, but I've been, I mean, even before this, I've been groped, spat on, shouted at, told to go back to my country countless times and That never deterred me from going in and saying, this is my city, this is my train. You will not keep me off it. I do worry about my mother, who is, of course, older and smaller. And I've armed her with like five different pepper sprays and other (laughs) tactical flashlights. And I've just told her, just don't, don't go if you don't need to, like I'll run the errands for you or take a car. It's really my parents that I'm worried about. And early in the pandemic, they were wearing like almost disguises. They put sunglasses on and hats on and masks on. So nobody could really see what race they were. That's Ugh. how targeted they felt.
1: That's heartbreaking. That's, I mean, that, oh my gosh. Especially knowing your parents the way I don't really, but that I feel like I do having read your book. I mean, that it would fast forward to this. How does your family feel about the book?
2: They were very resistant at first. It took me six months after my book deal to find the courage to tell them. Oh. It was only because my husband was like, you know, you don't want them walking down the street and seeing it in a store. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you wait any longer, that's what's going to happen. And I was like, oh yeah, you're right. I should probably give them some advance notice. And um, I, I told them, and it that night was like a who's afraid of Virginia Woolf play. There were so many emotions and what really broke my heart was the first thing my mother said. She said, so you want the whole world to know what an awful mother I was to you. And that she believes that to this day, she had carried the guilt of my childhood, the guilt of systemic barriers that she used all of her force to overcome that she still blamed herself was so heartbreaking to me. I, I just, I had not thought that that was where she was, but of course I had blamed myself. And as the three of us talked, my dad, of course, blamed himself. So all three of us were separately and privately carrying this belief that we were singularly at fault. And by virtue of not having spoken about it at all for decades, of course, there was no way to to come together in that feeling and, and build a connection around it. And so, you know, of course, they came around, they they often come around to everything that I choose to do, which is a real blessing. And my dream became that if, if my book could give my parents amnesty and forgiveness for the past, liberation from the past, liberation from that guilt, then then it will have been a success. And I didn't let them read it, read the book until it came out because there was still this little fear in my head that ICE would come after us. And I had this countdown on my phone to the to the days my my book released. But in my mind, it was also like countdown to when we might be, you know, deported for, for some by by some mechanism. Even though we were all documented. And I didn't want them to have that fear. I didn't want them to know what details I provided so intimately so that they would then become afraid of people coming after them. So I thought if I gave them the book on the day it came out, at least there would be no counting down. They'll see, you know, either ICE is here or it's not. And I knew rationally that ICE was not going to come after us, but there's also that, you know, emotional feeling deep down. So, Anyway, I gave them the book the day. It was Rosh Hashanah, actually. I'd spoken at Central Synagogue and we went to lunch and I gave them each a book. And I always do this. I had no idea it was genetic. I always read the last, very last sentence of any book first. I don't know why I do it. My dad apparently does the exact same thing. He flipped to the very last page, which was the acknowledgments, and he read the last sentence, which was thanking him and my mom for giving me everything when they had nothing. And he said, oh, I like this book. This is very well written. (laughs) (laughs) My mother immediately burst into tears just seeing my name on the cover, and they confessed that they didn't know if they would have the courage to read the book at all because there were just it was the hardest years of our lives and they didn't know if they could go back there but of course they did curiosity got the best of them and later that day my parents reached out and said that they cried every page every single page the happy pages the sad pages but they also felt liberated because there's nothing that they're running from anymore there's no secret that they're burying there's we have made the story ours, finally. And and they they realized that I didn't blame them, which I think was a big fear that they had been carrying my whole adulthood. Yeah, so my dream had come true. I thought I, I'd imagined it. But my father said, there's nothing I am afraid of anymore. Which to hear that, given his life, just meant the absolute world to me.
1: Uh. This is so moving. So inspiring. I mean, it's just truly amazing. And now with the success of the book, like what, like what now? Like what, do, like, I feel like you're, first of all, one of the most articulate people I've think I've ever spoken to in my life. Like, wh- where do you go from here? Are you, like, I feel like you should be some sort of, well, polit- not politician in, in a way that would be a you know, <laughs> I don't mean that in a negative way, but activist, politician, like speaking out. I know, I know you are like traveling around doing all sorts of things and whatever. But like, do you feel this greater sense of mission or or basically what do you like? What do you see now?
2: I do feel a greater sense because the more I talk to people around the country, the more I see that the very things that my parents and I faced almost 30 years ago now are still happening. It's the same systemic barriers. Nothing has really changed. Even my life has materially changed. So it just gives me all the more inspiration to keep forging ahead. So I actually, I left my big law firm and opened a a firm with my husband, who's also a lawyer. And we focus on representing immigrant families and families with children with disabilities and in securing the educational accommodations that their children need whether it's language support or support for learning disabilities and whether that's improved support within the public system or placement in a private system and funding for that so it's been incredibly inspiring to meet these children and these families most of them are single parent households just trying to get by many of them don't don't speak much english and just feeling connected kind of to my own inner child, the, the child that I was gives me more compassion and ability to see the realities of, of these children who are still very much facing some of the educational barriers that I was. But I feel like nothing I do can ever be enough. And so my mind is constantly kind of running through what else in terms of advocacy. I have gotten into political adv- advocacy and ad- activism meeting with senators and, and um, representatives to push for you know, whether that's funding for undocumented workers or more mental health support for the Asian American community and, and those that live amongst the Asian American community. I think the for the first time, I'm not on, I don't have a five-year plan. I don't have a track. I'm not chasing anything because I'm not running from anything. It's just what the community inspires me to do and, and what I feel called upon to do. I'm also working on a second book, which is a novel, about Asian American women working in big law firms in, in New York City. It's I just needed kind of a breather. A, a lot of people have asked me if I'm working on a second memoir, which I maybe down the line, but I kind of needed a breather and and kind of that freedom to make some things up and, and have more fun with it. And most of all, I think my parents are very relieved that I'm working on fiction. <laughs> They're like good go go write science fiction or fantasy. That no. that would. <laughs> To anything that's not a memoir again. Yeah. So it's, it's been, it's been really fun exploring that as well. And yeah, in a full, I've had several full circle moments. I've gone back to speak at PS 124. Some of my fellow classmates are now teachers there, which uh, it's so beautiful. I've gone back to Chatham square library and spent a lot of time speaking to the librarians. I will be speaking at a a conference for undocumented students from all over the country who are being brought to Swarthmore where I went to college. So the conference is providing funding for all of these students to come together and build that sense of community. So all of those things have been just so incredibly special. And and the ability to kind of travel across the country and meet people in all pockets and and communities and, and hear their stories has just made me, I think, a more Empathic person, more a fuller person with a better understanding of of uh, how things vary and don't vary so much across America.
1: Well, I'm voting for you for president. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> you have my vote. I don't even know what you believe in, but I'm I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I know there are a million questions, and I'm sorry I ran over with just the interview part of this, but I could listen to you forever. You're a really captivating speaker, and amazing. Thank you you so much. Thank you for your time. Take care. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy. My other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now, back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids.
0: Hi, hi, hello. Enjoy
1: the show.
0: I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents the Anime Effect.